We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, chapter 19, and we shall read from verse 11. Some verses from verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he did judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And may God add his blessing to this short reading of his word. We have been considering the great joy of the church and the joy that is expressed in heaven at the great event, the marriage of the Lamb. Now when we come to these verses here in chapter 19, we come to the great display of the glory and the majesty of the great warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was exalted to the Father's right hand as a prince and as a savior. In verse 11 here, John says, I saw heaven opened. And uh, when heaven is opened, this glorious victory parade, as it were, commences, and John is privileged to see it. Now, when we've come to this stage in the book of the Revelation, we have to appreciate that there has been a, a great advancement throughout the centuries and the millenniums of history. You've heard me say in different times, uh, there are several schools of interpretation of the book of the Revelation. And there is the preterist interpretation of those who believe that the book of Revelation was largely all fulfilled by the year 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and when the uh, Hebrew people were uh, almost annihilated 
and were the world changed forever, their world, but the whole world changed forever at that point. And that is a view that has been held and is still held by many today. And the reason for it is because that interpretation was largely introduced by a Jesuit who wrote a commentary on the book of the Revelation. It was published three years after he died in 1614. Lewis, uh, his name was Lewis uh, de uh, Alcazar. And he wrote a commentary and it was in defense of the papacy and the Church of Rome because the reformers interpreted the book of Revelation, the Antichrist set before us as the papacy and the Church of Rome as the harlot church of the Antichrist. Now what Alcazar did was he interpreted the book to be largely fulfilled by 70 AD and that all the persecution that is mentioned and depicted for us was largely from the Caesars, the Roman Caesars like Nero and uh, uh, those who persecuted the church, Christians and Jews, uh, they didn't make any distinction for a good period of time. And this was to protect the papacy and the reputation of Rome so that the Antichrist, the reformers, identified the Pope of Rome as the Antichrist, as our Westminster Confession of Faith still does. And so this was his interpretation. There is another school of interpretation that of the futurists, and that view is that the book of the Revelation is largely all about the very end times just prior to and at the second coming of the Lord. Now, it ought not to surprise us that this was another view, another interpretation, again, to protect Rome and the papacy, but from another uh, point of view. And again, it was the interpretation introduced by a Jesuit. You've heard me refer to the plague of locusts and uh, that plague that was uh, out of the bottomless pit to spread its influence throughout the world and throughout human society. Uh, Francisco Ribera, some of you may have heard of him, in uh, 1590, I think it was, he produced a commentary on the book of the Revelation 
stating that the majority of the book was about the very last time, particularly the reign of the Antichrist for three and a half years, and of course to protect the papacy uh, from the uh, criticisms of the reformers, he stated that the Antichrist that would reign for three and a half years, dominating the world, persecuting the church, and so on, was to be an apostate Jew, or perhaps some unknown leader that would arise in a system like communism or some similar system. Now, these different views have all been uh, originated essentially were the Jesuits. And their goal was, Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, had a vision from theirs, professed he had a vision from the Virgin Mary, and he was told that he was to establish an army, a priestly army to protect Rome and to protect and serve the papacy. And that's exactly what he did. And the head of the Jesuits, referred to sometimes as the black pope, he's always in the shadow of the white pope, and the Jesuits, their system is a military system. The head of the system is not merely called father, he's the father general. And it is structured like a military institution to protect Rome and, according to their own profession, if necessary, to destroy Rome, to protect their own institution. It is the most deadly organization in reality the world has ever had to contend with. And yet, people don't realize that the majority today almost, it's coming more and more to be like that. Many of the presidents, the rulers, politicians throughout the world are presently being educated by the Jesuits so that they get their minds, they can influence their minds, they can distort history, they can change the facts so that a generation grows up not actually knowing the facts. They don't actually know the facts of history. And they don't fear the dangers that actually exist because they are educating those with influence throughout the nations in order that they will not fear Rome and its dogmas and its doctrines, that system that has basically filled the world with idolatry. That's what it has done. Now, the reform position is what is known, referred to as the the historic interpretation. And that means that those who hold that position, the reformed position, believe that the book of the Revelation covers history from the first coming of Christ until his second 
coming. That's the position. That's the reformed position. Now, you might be surprised to know that many, many, for example, in America, fundamentalists, leading Baptists, and dispensationalists, they hold with a futurist position. Many of them do. And if you ask them, who do you believe is the Antichrist? Even those who subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, I've heard it with my own ears, they will say, the Pope is the Antichrist in the church. If you ask them, they'll say, oh, the Pope is the Antichrist in the church. But they expect some other antichrist, some figure, to arise yet outside of the church who's going to be the real antichrist. And they've fallen into the trap that was led by the Jesuits to capture the minds and the thinking even of evangelicals. Now, when we come to this chapter 19, we do so as those who believe that we've been observing the movement of history and the overruling power of the throne of glory over all the events that have been guiding the church through the most difficult times, protecting the witness and the cause of Christ right through the history until this glorious sight appears to John. What a sight it is. I saw heaven opened. Now why is it open to John? Because John is to write to the seven churches in Asia. And he is to tell them about this in order to encourage them, in order to strengthen their hands as it were because of the difficulties the church was facing back then. But the difficulties that he became aware were going to face the church right uh, throughout history. Now, what does John see? You will remember in the Song of Solomon that the spouse has asked, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? What is he, what is different, what is unique about him? And then you have, as it were, the voice of the church saying, my beloved is ruddy, and so on, and describes the various features of her beloved. And then concludes by summing it all up, yea, he is altogether lovely. He is altogether lovely. And that is how the church sees Christ in every situation. Everything they see of him is lovely. Everything they learn of him is lovely. Everything they discover 
in the scriptures about him is a presentation of his spiritual, heavenly, holy loveliness. And here we have one of these glorious scenes where we see him. And we see him in all his glory. What are we told? Behold, John says, a white horse. Behold, a white horse. Well, John could have said, behold, a war horse. Behold, a strong horse. But John says, behold, a white horse. Now, because of the advancements in history and technology and so on, perhaps for the younger generation, the white horse doesn't have the kind of meaning and the significance that it would have had to John. It would have had a great significance to John because of its color, but also because of him that sat upon it. And he that sat upon it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Here is the great warrior king. Here is Christ as the great warrior king. And he seated, as it were, coming out of heaven on his white steed. Now John, perhaps he even saw it with his own eyes. John was aged at the time he wrote this uh, book, and he had experienced living in the Roman Empire, and no doubt he would have been a witness sometimes, probably to some of the great victory parades that the Romans loved to engage in. When Julius Caesar, for example, came in victory to Rome, he would ride upon a white horse, and his armies and the captives would be coming behind, and he would wear the crowns of victory of the conquered kings and so on that he had conquered in battle. And here is John seeing something that would have a significance, but a great spiritual significance. Here is the white horse of the conqueror, the white horse of the great warrior who has conquered, and his name is called Faithful and True. This is the great leader and commander of the church. And his name is called Faithful and True. So that there is absolutely no doubt in John's mind who the rider of this white horse is. His name is Faithful and True. And this, of course, certainly says much about his character is absolutely faithful and reliable, and he is absolutely true. There is no error whatever in any of his judgments. 
There is no unfaithfulness whatever in any thing that he does. It is absolutely true, correct, because in him, as Paul tells uh, the Colossians, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here is the one who is brought before us as it were, the great triumphant victor, and his name is faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now you will remember that back in the little prophecy of Zechariah, which is again fulfilled in Christ, Matthew tells us, records for us the event when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of an ass, as had been prophesied by Zechariah. And the people were casting their garments upon the ground, and they were uh, coming with their hosannas. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And he was coming, as Zechariah says, meek and lowly, meek and lowly, riding upon an ass, the foal of an ass. But those were the days of his humiliation. The one who rode into Jerusalem in that manner, was to be crucified and rejected. And it seemed that his cause had been defeated when people came past the cross and they saw what Pilate had written above his cross. This is the king of the Jews. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. They have crucified the one who rode into Jerusalem, meek and lowly. But here, now the same one is riding on the white steed of victory, and he is now clothed in garments of honor. Yes, his character hasn't changed. He's still the meek and the lowly Jesus. But he is now a judge. You will see that in righteousness he doth judge and he makes war. He judges because you will see how his eyes are described. His eyes were as a flame of fire. We go back to the earlier uh, part of Revelation, and he is so described. His eyes are as a flame of fire with searching power. He misses nothing. He searches everything. And on the basis of the perfection of his knowledge, he makes his judgment. And because 
of the righteousness of his judgments, he makes war. He is not, as it were, drawn by the enemy into war. He isn't forced, as it were. He makes a judgment. And all throughout history, he is making his own judgments. He knows exactly when to act and exactly how to act. He is made head over all things to his church. Over all things to protect his church. Over all things to preserve his church. Over all things to rule his church. Everything that is happening under his rule and authority. Central to it all is his church. And we must never forget that. We're up to forget it. Well, if this happens in the government, this happens in the land, what's going to become of the church? What's going to happen to the truth? And so on. He is head over all things. Every parliamentary election, every up and down Historically, politically, economically, he's ruling over it all for the good and the for the sake of his church. And here John sees him and he says, he doth judge. And he never makes a wrong judgment. He never makes a wrong move. He never has any regrets that his strategy hasn't been well thought through. He applies all the divine wisdom and knowledge that he possesses from all eternity as the second person of the Godhead. And he searches the hearts of men. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Whenever the psalmist, in Psalm 139, for example, is asking the Lord to search him and know him, what's he asking for? He's asking God to miss nothing. He knows he may miss things. He knows his own nature. He knows how he is apt to condone sin. How he is prone to excuse his sins. And the heart that is deceitful will deceive him. So he asks the one whose eyes are a flame of fire to search him. Very often, at a communion, when the people of God are required to examine themselves, this is the kind of portion of truth that will be turned to in order that the Lord's people would seek that searching 
but so often I fear they don't actually know what they're asking for. And if they really know, is that really what they want? But this is the one that John sees. What an encouragement to know. He's to write to the seven churches. He's been hearing, he's been seeing through the symbols, through the figures, throughout this book, the most fearful persecution he has seen the greatest displays of satanic power the great red dragon the devil the accuser of the brethren the deceiver the destroyer he has seen him depicted seeking to devour the man-child that was born. He doesn't succeed. Then he sends a flood out after the woman to drown her. Then when that doesn't succeed, he persecutes the seed of the woman. The great destroyer with all his satanic power, with the legions that he has drawn out of heaven in rebellion with him the mighty host of the great red dragon. In addition, he sees the beast rising up out of the sea. This great power among men, he sees another beast rising up out of the earth, another great world power. And they're all motivated by the same spirit of opposition and hatred and antagonism to the Christ of God, to the church of Christ, to the word of God, to the saints of God, to the martyrs, the witnesses. What a scene is depicted. And John has been hearing from the head of the church The one whose eyes are as a flame of fire. He has been examining the seven churches. And he has informed John of their spiritual state. And in some cases it's not very promising, so much so that the glorious head, the one riding in this horse, has been sending messages that they need to repent. Repent. And repent quickly. Why? Because of the low spiritual state that existed in some of those churches. Now, if John were to look to the future on the basis of what he now knows, about these churches, maybe, humanly speaking, his heart must sink. How are they ever going to survive? What is the future going to be? And then he sees the evidence of the great onslaught. The powers of darkness, 
And it would seem it won't be long until those mighty powers will crash out. The poor, weak, faltering church. It won't be long until the church will be no more. That might pass through the mind of someone like John if he just saw all this. But he was introduced to the throne. The one who was in the midst of the throne, the Lamb in the midst of the throne, all power is given unto him. Therefore he sends the apostles out. And he sends them out as sheep among wolves. Did he know where he was sending them? Of course he did. Is this a cruel act on the part of the Savior to send his disciples out to be harassed, to be persecuted, to be imprisoned, to be tortured, to be put to death, to be devoured by these wolves. But that's what he's doing. He's sending them out as his witnesses, as his ambassadors, into this terrible scene where they are surrounded by, where they are opposed by, these tremendous forces of darkness. It's it's as though... When you look at the depictions, hell has opened up her mouth to send out these fearful satanic agents. And if we didn't see what happens at the end of this book, we would be wondering where has the church ever survive such an onslaught? How can it survive? Ah, but this is what John sees. There is a victor riding on a white horse and it's not Satan. It is not the devil. It is not the Antichrist. It is he who is called Faithful and true. And we're told that on his head were many crowns. On his head were many crowns because of his triumph. He has conquered and he has led his enemies low. You, you know, of course, in the day in which we live, you have, for example, Queen Elizabeth II of England, and uh, she is the Queen of England, and of Wales, and of Scotland, and of Northern Ireland, and of Canada, and of Australia, and all the various parts of her dominion. And she wears the crown as the supreme monarch, as it were, the ruler uh, over all these dominions. Here is Christ. And he is crowned with many crowns. 
He has taken the crown of his enemies. You see the beasts with their crowns. He's taken every one of them. He has destroyed them. He has laid them low because of his mighty power. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. Now that statement has baffled many of the commentators. What is the real meaning? And some think that it just refers to the other names that he's given, that he is the one who really understands their meaning. But it is a name written. John saw it. It isn't just a name that exists. It's a name that is actually written. But you see, it's like so many other writings Only he really understands it, what it really means, what it really signifies. Now, I believe we get some clue from the chapter that we read in the epistle to the Philippians in the second chapter. After his humiliation, Verse 8 of Philippians 2. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name. He has been given a name that is solely his. It's above every, all the other great names sink into insignificance when viewed in the light of this name. No one else can possibly bear this name. This name cannot be attached to any other person anywhere in the universe. No one knows this name but himself. No one knows experientially this name. It belongs solely to him. And uh, we are told that it is a name written that no man knew but himself. So he's the only one who can explain this name. He's the only one who can interpret this name. And therefore, only those to whom he discloses it can know its significance and its meaning. Now we get some idea as to whom he might well disclose it when we read, for example, those words in the Psalms, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. There are things that he reveals to his people that those who are strangers to him, 
cannot possibly know. He opens up things. He opens his heart to them. He reveals himself in his glorious fullness to them so that they have a relationship with him and he with them and he discloses to them who he really is. And as we go to the Song of Solomon, for example, what's he called there? My beloved. My beloved is mine. And I am my beloved's. And he has a relationship with his people by which he discloses himself, by which he reveals himself. And only he can do it. Therefore, John is seeing here the glorious Redeemer and all his majestic glory as one who has a special relationship with his own dear people. And whatever their lot in providence, he discloses himself to them. And throughout history, in the midst of their persecution, midst of all their opposition that they experience, he discloses himself. He makes himself known to them. But we read that he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. You will see his vesture is mentioned again in verse 16. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the vesture was the outer garment, the great flowing outer garment. If you ever were to see any depictions of some of the kings, even the Caesars, even the Queen of England in the past, riding side saddle in the horse or flowing robe or flowing outer garment, lying over the flank of the horse that she's on and so on. This is what John is talking about. And very often on the garment, on the hem of that great flowing outer garment would be the name of the conquering king. And we are told here on his vesture, it is dipped in blood. There are different opinions as to whose blood this is, whether it was the blood of the Savior making atonement for sin, or whether it is, as in Isaiah 63, who is this that cometh up from Basra, from Eden, and the one who has trod the winepress of his enemies all alone. And uh, there are different opinions, but it does seem, from the context, this is the blood of his enemies. But then again... How does he conquer his enemies? How did he gain the victory? It was in his death that he triumphed. And in the shedding of his blood, he bought his people. In the shedding of his blood, he made atonement for their sins. 
He delivered them. He brought them out of bondage. He freed them from their captors. So that in a sense, both uh, are included, as it were, in the sight here. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. In the prophecy of Isaiah, in the ninth chapter, you have there Isaiah prophetically speaking of the birth of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah writes, well, verse 5, For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. And then look at how the prophet connects the words of the next verse. He's talking about warfare. The warrior and the confused noise of battle But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. This shall be, as it were, even a greater war. Why? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Here is one almost indescribable. Words aren't sufficient as it were. Human language is not adequate to describe the fullness of his glorious personage. All the attributes that belong to him. Here we have that very person. Riding upon this white horse in triumph and victory and glory. And his name is called the Word of God. John tells us of the Word that was made flesh. His name is called the Word of God. The immutable, eternal Word of God. Here is the triumph of the eternal Son in our nature as the Word made flesh. His triumph, his victory. He has conquered being the eternal word of God. Now you see uh, something more of this when you go down to verse 15. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Now later down... In verse 16, you read, He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. And various 
minds have tried to work out where this name is actually written. Now you heard me refer some weeks ago to Abraham's servant having to put his hand on the thigh of Abraham and swear, swear to him that he would not take Isaac back to Ur of the Chaldees, back to idolatry, and he would not uh, have a Canaanite wife marrying Isaac and so on. And so he, it was a covenant that he swore to be obedient to do the will of Abraham. And here we have the glorious Redeemer, and he has a name on his thigh and a name written on his vesture and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And some trying to escape the dilemma, they will say that the name was written on his sword because as he rode, his sword was on his thigh. Well, that won't make sense because the sword is in his mouth. And we're told that his name is written, therefore, on his vesture and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What glorious names he has, faithful and true. The Word of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you put the names all together, you combine them all together. What a fullness there is in those names. Can we think of anything as it were, any attribute, any element of glory, anything that would be left out? His person is depicted in all imaginable glory and majesty. And he rides forth, conquering and to conquer. But how does he conquer? You see that there are armies, verse 14, which were in heaven following him upon white horses. It's interesting to see that it is in the plural armies. You go to Daniel, and there we're told... Of this glorious one, he doeth according to his will in the army, singular, of heaven. The army of heaven. What do we read here? The armies which were in heaven. This isn't just an army of angels. The armies which were in heaven, the glorious hosts of the redeemed. No one else can be clothed the way they're clothed. Look at their uniforms. White horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And you read earlier of the white the fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of saints. 
the righteousness that is imputed to the saints. And they are following him, the lamb whithersoever he goeth, the armies. You think of all the great generals and so on that have down through history led an army, some to defeat, some to victory. But here is one, and he is capable of leading all the armies in heaven. My, what a mind, what qualities, what wisdom to make a judgment, how to defend his cause and his church, how to lay low his enemies. What a scene. The, 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 the words barely depict for us the majesty, the scene. Here is the glorious Christ and the numberless hosts of his armies that are following him. And what are we told? Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. You only read of his armies which were in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now we might expect surely that we could read that they were clothed in what Paul describes in the epistle to the Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God. And John might then be describing their breastplates, their helmets, their swords. But that's not what he does. He describes them as clothed in fine linen, clean and white. They are also in victory. They are also in the great victory parade of the Redeemer. And who has won the victory? Is it them? Out of his mouth goeth a sharp Sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. What a sight John is seeing. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword and with it he smites the nations and he subdues them as we read and sang in Psalm 2. But when we go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, for example, Isaiah there depicts this glorious one in prophecy and uh, how he uh, conquers the nations and the people with the rod (coughs) that uh, goeth out of his mouth. The same rod, the sword, going out of his mouth. 
Now, why is this so? Why is this the great instrument? And how does he conquer with the sword of his mouth, with the rod of his mouth? That is the weapon that is used not only to subdue those who are to be brought into a saving relationship with Christ, but to actually overthrow his enemies. One amazing scene is brought before us in the Gospel of John. He records it there in chapter 18. What a scene it is, the night of his betrayal. John 18, verse 3, Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. There they come into the garden where he is with his disciples, having gone through an agony of soul. Here there appears those who are going to take him captive. They come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? You come with torches and lanterns and weapons. You must be seeking someone very dangerous. You must be seeking some terrible criminal, someone who's a threat to you. You've come with weapons. Whom seek ye? They answered Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them as soon as he had said unto them, I am he. They went backward and fell to the ground. And even though Peter drew his sword, Jesus said, you put that sword up. I don't need that sword. He's just demonstrated the mighty sword that proceeds out of his mouth. They come with their weapons. And he is without any weapon except the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And when he said, I am he, we might think, well, he's just identifying himself. There's more to it. When Moses had that experience in the backside of the desert, and God revealed himself to him, and he said, I am that I am. He's claiming, I am, as I am, who I am, immutably, unchangeably, for all eternity. Jesus declared his deity again and again. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light, and so on. And yet people will overlook this little statement, 
And it does include, I am. I am. I am he. And the great I am, with the sword of his mouth, causes his enemies to fall backward and fall on the ground. When John saw this one, would he remember that night? John's mind might drift back. I remember when he spoke. There they were with their weapons, their spears, their swords. And all he did was say, I am he. And they all collapsed before him. Because that's the sword of his might. And John sees the reason why the enemies are defeated. The glorious Redeemer is in triumph. It isn't that his people have won the victory. It is he who has won it for them. Time doesn't permit us to go any further, but what a scene. What an encouragement to the poor Church of Jesus Christ. What a display of glory from the glorious Redeemer riding on his white horse, conquering with the sword of his mouth. What a scene. But that is to encourage the Church of Christ in the darkest of days. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice in the great King of Zion. We thank thee that however chaotic things may seem in this world, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, the great I am, is in control. May we look to him, may we rejoice in him, May we follow him. Bless thy truth to encourage thy people. Pardon all our sins except of us. For Christ's sake. Amen.